0: there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
1: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners.
0: listeners. It is just after 7 o'clock, and you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler, and here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. Here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and link to our links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Christine Tataru, a PhD candidate in the Department of Microbiology here at OSU. Welcome to the show, Christine.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So you study what is a very hot and interesting topic for both scientists and the general public alike, the gut microbiome. I feel like every day we hear something new about how the gut microbiome is involved in some disease, how it affects your mood. What foods or probiotics to eat to have a quote unquote optimal gut microbiome. But before we dive into some of the more interesting revelations about it, let's define what the gut microbiome even is.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a great place to start. So, the gut microbiome is the collection of tiny microorganisms that live in the intestinal tract, um, and that can be bacteria, it can be viruses, it can be fungi. Um, It's the whole system that exists.
0: So tiny living things that occupy our digestive tract. That's it. <laughs> You're never alone when you have your gut microbiome with you. So one, uh, one of the reasons that the gut microbiome has become so much more of a topic of interest, I think, is because in um, recent decades, uh, te- the technology that we use to look at it has improved immensely. What are some of the ways that we can actually collect data about the gut microbiome?
1: Yeah, so there's actually a lot of ways. Um, what we generally tend to do is we start with a stool sample, um, which is already a choice that's being made. Yeah, you know, we could start with a biopsy, that's really hard to get. So we start with a stool sample, and from that we can sequence a bunch of different types of data. Um, so we can ask a couple of different questions. We can ask who is there. So we can take a census or a roll call of the different bacterial species that are around. Um, We can also sequence all of the DNA that's there and thereby get kind of what we call genetic potential. So what are these bugs able to do? What do they have the instructions to be able to do? Um, We can also do uh, sequencing to see what kinds of genes are they actively expressing so which of those instructions are important to them (laughs) Um, and then we can also ask like what kinds of metabolites so chemicals or um, nutrients or even proteins are around in the environment that they would have access to and that might be something that they're creating or it might be something that the host meaning us is creating and then the bacteria are using
0: so all of these different ways to kind of look at the different pieces of the puzzle in how the gut microbiome and the human body kind of interact. So your research comes at a really interesting um, uh, area of this in that we have these massive amounts of data that have been collected. So when you sequence a gut microbiome, you just you get, you know so, so much data. I, I think I wrote in the article that it's worldwide on the scale of pentabytes. Of data, It's upsetting. It's yeah. So we have so much, uh, and that's great that we have. You know, who who are the bacteria there, and what are they eating? What are they not eating? What are they, you know, using? What are the genes that they have turned on? But, but the challenge is really how do we make use of that data? Um, and so, what what's kind of the approach that that you're taking with with all of these different windows that we can kind of look through? Tell us a little bit about your your role in this. Yeah, um, well, it is a very
1: challenging um, question and there are a lot of different approaches that one might take. So I wanna lay the groundwork that this is not the only way. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but the way that i have kind of going about this um, is actually using some fancy computer algorithms, um, so specifically natural language processing techniques um, to work with all of that data and find, and I guess mathematically define um, some underlying processes that we think these microbes are undergoing, um and basically finding patterns in that are way more complex than you know the
0: the puny human brain could ever <laughs> hold on to. so. We- you said that word there, natural language processing, which um, for our listeners is a computer science term. And t- tell us a little bit about your background, because I think your, your background gives you a really unique kind of um, way to approach this problem.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I am not a microbiologist by training. I'm actually a computer scientist. Um, and I did my bachelor's and master's in computer science focusing on machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, And I specifically remember sitting in my computer science class and staring at the whiteboard and learning about this natural language processing algorithm um, that was up there. And I just kind of had this moment where I was like, oh, yes, this is it. I'm going to take that algorithm and I'm going to apply it to these microbes instead of the natural language that it was currently being applied to. And it's going to tell us what we want to know. It's going to tell us what healthy microbiomes look like um and so that was kind of the, the launching off point from switching from computer science to being kind of this in between computer scientists <laughs> microbiologist role so what is natural language processing natural language processing is the general field of ha- getting computers to understand human language um do you want me to keep going? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How? How? <laughs> how? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's super interesting. It's fascinating. Um, basically, a computer given presented with a document doesn't understand any of the words that's given to it. So it, it might as well be word one, word two um, <laughs> when it comes to computer interpretation. But what computers are really good at is understanding patterns. And so a lot of these algorithms, they basically rely on putting words into groups or like relative distances from one another based on the words patterns with other words. So Mm -hmm. they'll go and they'll look and they'll say these words co-occur really frequently together in the same sentence. These words never co-occur together. And then these words kind of sometimes they co-occur with the same words, but they never directly co-occur together. Um, And in this way it will pattern out the relationships between words Um, And it'll kind of start to, quote, understand Mm -hmm. what's happening just based on what words like to work together. Um, So I thought it would be very cool to try to take those same concepts, apply them to microbes and understand, you know, these microbes might be working together because they really often appear in the environment together. Or maybe these microbes are competitors because they never co-occur together. Mm -hmm. Or maybe these microbes are Filling the same ecological niche because they co occur with the same patterns, but they never co occur together. So you can pick
0: either one microbe or the other, and they will fulfill that role in the
1: environment.
0: So it sounds like you're kind of uh, looking at the social networks of these bacteria, as it were. Who, who hangs out with who, who never hangs out, who gets invited to the same parties, but maybe don't hang out at the party. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then you can start being
1: like, well, who might get along based on mm. their similarities in social circles? Gotcha.
0: So it, it's, it's a interest. It's an innovative and it's a very, um, it sounds like, uh, oh, what's the word I want to use here? Data rich approach you can get a lot of information out of it data driven data driven <laughs> that's the key word driven. everyone loves <laughs> so um so you use your algorithm on these massive sets of gut microbiome data and what do you get at the end
1: <laughs> at the end you get um you get matrices <laughs> so you get a um Logistically, you get a matrix that is a sample by what I call property matrix. Mm. Um, and so the properties are kind of a term I made up to try to, to cross between the data vocab and the microbiology mm. vocab, because I oftentimes end up talking to both audiences at the <laughs> same time, um, which makes things really fun. So properties are in other, uh, in like data terms called latent variables. Mm. And what these are, are, um, I've, so when I talked about grouping microbes together, you might've imagined, you know, in two dimensional space, like an mm. X, Y plot, um, that these microbes are over here in the top left-hand corner on this axis and then these other microbes are here in the bottom right. Um, But in reality, what the algorithms give us is not two dimensions per microbe, but actually like 250
0: dimensions. Wow. (laughs) Um, I I don't know if that's, I can visualize. (laughs) I don't think you should try. (laughs) Um, But.
1: Logistically, you know, working with the numbers, it's, it's the same as working with two dimensions. Mm. If you can take a distance between two points, you can take a distance between two points in 250-dimensional <laughs> space. It's, it's just math. Um, just math. It's just math. And so what the really cool thing that you wouldn't necessarily expect to happen when you apply these algorithms is that every one of those 250 dimensions ends up representing some kind of Either metabolic process on the part of the bacteria Mm. or nutrient availability or something that has to do with how the bacteria interact with each other. So, not only do we get to kind of group bacteria into things that into um, groups that belong together, but you also kind of get an idea of why Mm. from those 250 dimensions.
0: So, does that then give you some information about? maybe what types of patterns of bacteria and their nutrients might be correlating with some kind of health or disease state? Yeah, that's exactly the goal. So I think the traditional method
1: of looking at gut microbiomes was to kind of look for this one bacteria that was going to be like the smoking gun, the silver bullet, that this was the problem in a given disease or on the contrary, that this one bacteria was really healthy and protective Mm. of disease. And I think as more and more data has come out, the whole field has begun to realize that while that would be very nice, that's not (laughs) really what um, is happening here. And so uh, what we find is that by looking at this kind of more integrative approach or looking at things like um pathways and nutrient availability we can get a much better picture and more complete picture of what factors are involved in these diseases Mm. like what we call complex diseases things that don't
0: necessarily have one cause so something like inflammatory bowel disease exactly um So kind of going back to what you talked about earlier about all the different ways that we can look at the gut microbiome, we could do the census, look at the functions, look at the proteins or metabolites that are actually being produced. So do you use all of these different kinds of data in the same algorithm or do you do it like separately and then put them all together?
1: I do use all of those data in the same algorithm Uh and that is the really fun part. So when I first started this approach, I just used the census data. Um, it's something we we call 16 S data, but that was, as you can imagine, you know, only one lens Mm -hmm. through which you could view this environment. So naturally I was curious about, can, can we use them all and can we use them all at the same time? Um, more traditionally people will use one or multiple of these and they'll analyze them kind of independently, um, and then try to, put them together at the end, um, mm. put all their puzzle pieces together at the end. And so I thought it would be very cool if we could apply some of these algorithms to all of these data at once and mush them together at the same time for the analysis.
0: Have the computer do all of the hard thinking. Exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't wanna do that thinking. That's <laughs> that's too hard. You just wanna say, yep, that makes sense. That <laughs> That picture, that snapshot, looks like what I would expect, or maybe not. Yes. It has
1: the the human interpretation seal of approval um, without having any of the limitations of mm. only being able to see really, really simple patterns.
0: <laughs> so so what are some of the challenges with this approach?
1: There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really beneficial, but there has to be has to be some challenges. Um, I think one of the challenges is just that it's a new approach that mm. people haven't done it before, and so a lot of the you know packages and tools that might be available for other more traditional types of analyses just aren't there mm. You're making um, them making them <laughs> <laughs> from scratch. Um, another kind of funny challenge is just the amount of time that it takes to run some of these algorithms. Oh, yeah. um, you know it's on the order of days. Sometimes, and you will set something to run, and then you come back and check it three days later, and you realize there was a bug. And you're like, okay, let's start all (laughs) over. (laughs) Um, And I think one of the biggest challenges is also interpretation. Mm. Um, So the computer has found all these really cool patterns. We think they're really meaningful, they're very predictive of disease. And then you, as the human, go look at them, and you're like, "Ah, I I don't know what that means, Mm. though. And you have to dive into the databases and dive into the literature to try to interpret that for you know actual use, because mm. the patterns are fairly useless if you can't create action from them.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it seems like a, a major limitation would just be, you know, maybe you, you find these things that are related or these patterns, but maybe those relationships haven't actually been studied yet. And so you look at them, you're like, oh, I don't know why this gene and this compound would go together right (laughs) no one's no one's looked at that so but 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 maybe that's a benefit in that it is it could be helpful for like hypothesis generation
1: yes and so it is both a challenge and a strength we can come (laughs) up with new new ideas that haven't been generated yet yeah
0: Um, but then we have to actually go and test them and that is kind of where your PhD took a pivot about what halfway through yeah or so that's right someone gave this computer scientist to pipette. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. (laughs) So, um, I'll let you tell that story, but, but yeah, so, so now you're actually in, you're not just on a computer, you're in the lab pipetting things. And yeah, it's, I don't know, that's been the
1: the most fun pivot, what do you call it? Change (laughs) in my (laughs) trajectory. Um, thus far. So yes, that was one of my frustrations. I was very annoyed that everything I was finding was very cool, but it was all correlational. Mm. And the question that everyone always asks you at every talk is okay, but what about causation? <laughs> I, and, and, and it was, you know, obviously frustrating to the audience members and it was frustrating to me as well. because um, I really wanted to be able to dig in and say like, is it real? Is this mm. pattern that we've discovered something that's biological or is it just, you know, Cool math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I read this very cool paper about organ on a chip technology and how you can recreate these tiny little systems to be really quite accurate um, in a laboratory setting. And then you can use that to test out all of those, you know, specific hypotheses that we were generating as well as like mechanisms. So like how mm. w- those are the associations they hold true in a laboratory setting and why do they Mm. hold true so you can get really deep down into the the specifics and the nitty gritty so yeah i um, convinced my pi to invest in this organ on a chip system and i picked up a pipette for the first time since high school biology (laughs) um (laughs) and it's been such a learning curve um and it's been so much fun to actually get down and dirty to, to understand what is going on in the system.
0: Yeah. So so in this system, this gut on the chip, um, you are you trying to mimic a certain part of the intestines? Are you growing intestinal cells? Are you what's what's in it? Yes. So the basic <laughs> system
1: is um, it's a little rectangle um, that's made out of silicone. And it has two channels in it, a so top and the bottom channel. And those are split by a microporous membrane, a <laughs> um, piece of silicone with tiny holes in it, so that the cells can trade metabolites. And so on the top channel, we grow a human intestinal epithelial cell. So like the the intestinal lining. Mm. And then on the bottom, we grow endothelial cells, which are kind of the like support structure for the lining. So they're the ones who are providing a lot of the nutrients and providing a a physiologically accurate (laughs) um, ecosystem for the, the top channel cells. And in the system, you have a lot of things that you don't get. In kind of the traditional cell culture world, Um, namely that the media is flowing over the cells constantly. And so that is emulating the actual intestinal tract. Um, In addition, we get to add peristalsis-like forces. So we get to um, add this like regular stretch force that actually makes the cells do weird things, Mm. Um, do things that they would do in the body that they wouldn't normally do in a dish. Gotcha. They differentiate is what happens.
0: So in, in typical cell culture, you have a flat dish, you grow a single layer of cells or I don't know, maybe a couple layers. Yeah. It it actually is a monolayer. Just a single layer. One
1: layer of cells. Yeah.
0: And so that can tell you some things, but it's not, it doesn't very realistically mimic the actual body whereas it sounds like your system actually has more factors that replicate what would actually happen yeah exactly and you'll actually see them kind
1: of like pop up and in, in in vivo in the organism mm-hmm. you see um cells forming these like villi and crypt structures um, which we don't normally see in the flat cell cultures but which you do see in the chips so but you, it's
0: the same kind of it's cell the same that, kind that you kind put of into cells. the dish it's just different stimuli Biology is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you can grow these cells. You can very precisely control the environment, which means you could theoretically model some disease state potentially if you knew what went into that. Right. If
1: you knew, if you only knew, yes. <laughs> so that is, in fact, the um, major project that I'm trying to do with this system is I'm trying to model inflammatory bowel disease, hmm. um, which is one of those complex diseases that we know a lot of the things that are involved in it, but we don't really know like what causes it to begin with. Um, and it's difficult to study in other systems because a lot of the models that exist are very harsh. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're recreating some of the symptoms, but not necessarily from the same cause, um, which means that they're recreating the symptoms to like maybe a more, a higher degree than, than you really would want. Um, So the way that I'm trying to go about modeling this inflammatory bowel disease is by simulating the, Cytokine feed forward cycle.
0: Lots of big words there. (laughs) Let's break it down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, cytokines are the um, alarm system of your body. It's what your immune cells secrete to say there's something going on here. We should kill it. And then, what happens is all of the other cell types, including your intestinal lining cells, your epithelial cells, will respond to that first alarm call with a secondary alarm call hmm. so they also secrete cytokines and they're like okay let's do it let's kill the thing <laughs> and those sec- that secondary alarm system feeds back into the first one so you get this kind of feed forward cycle and in a healthy gut that happens for a little bit and then at some point it stops in an inflammatory bowel disease gut that cycle continues mm. perpetually and that's when you see a lot of these like really uncomfortable
0: symptoms for people their guts are just constantly inflamed so it's Rohan responding to the lighting of the fires of Gondor just in perpetual <laughs> <laughs> back and forth forever <laughs> no stopping <laughs> until there's no more wood left until there's no more wood.
1: <laughs> um so I am trying to basically create that feed forward cycle in my system and then I'm going to be adding things to try to dampen down that second alarm call. So the response call of the epithelial cells, mm. I'm going to treat them and try to see if I can get them to be a
0: little quieter mm. about their secondary alarm call. Try to cut off the cycle. And cut off the cycle. And this is kind of where your 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 other project ties in is um, how do you How do you figure out what you're going to try to use to dampen these responses? And I do that with my fancy natural (laughs) language
1: processing algorithms, of course. Um, Yes. So the first couple projects that I've been involved with have identified some particular bacterial species as well as some particular metabolites that we think might have anti-inflammatory action. So cool. Um, So we're going to be testing those out on the chip to see if we actually get, you know, a a subdued response like we're looking for and to be very clear we are not trying to shut down the immune system altogether (laughs) Um, because I think that's something that gets talked about in pop culture that like inflammation is bad Mm. Like inflammation is very important (laughs) your body needs inflammation to fight disease it's it is a good thing it's a good thing in the right contexts
0: Mm. and it's good when it does its job it's not good when it just runs runs rampant (laughs) exactly awesome so it's this is a way that you can like test out some of these hypotheses, maybe test out what could potentially in the future be therapeutics potentially for people with IBD. That would be very cool. That's really awesome. (laughs) So, um, this is kind of leading us into another question that I had is, uh, so if, you know, dysbiotic quote unquote gut microbiome, so gut microbiomes that are maybe out of balance with what we think of, um, being, you know, quote unquote, healthy are associated with things like IBD or other uh, gastrointestinal diseases. What does a healthy gut microbiome actually look like? What would that look like? That is the holy grail of this <laughs> that's field. That's a big question.
1: <laughs> that's what we want to know. <laughs> um, I think that that is, that's the question that drives me. I think it's mm. a question that drives a lot of people. And I think we don't have an answer for that yet. Um, kind of like we were talking about before, we'd love to believe that, you know, a healthy microbiome just has a lot of this one Mm. particular species or has like the ratios, the correct ratios of all of these different genera, like that would be really simple. But in reality, what we've found is that it really depends on who you are, where you're living, what your genetics look like, um, what you're eating even. And there's so much evidence out there that healthy for one person is not healthy for another and vice versa. Um, So we're still really trying to nail down all of the factors that have to do with defining what a healthy microbiome Mm. is. And I'm hoping that this type of approach that I've been trying to take that, you know, I consider a little bit more integrative than the the kind of more one bacteria focused type of analyses um, is a step in the right direction to try to understand all
0: the factors that are going into that question. Yeah. So we just we have a lot of information. It sounds like we need much more information still. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's not necessarily, I mean I agree with that statement, but it's not necessarily more sequencing that we need. Sure. What we need is to like use the data that we have in a
0: more complete way. An integrative an integrative way. way. so i want to um take a little bit of a step away from your research i think your journey to oregon state is also pretty interesting so you told us that you were trained as a computer scientist how the heck did you end up here studying microbes in a dish
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I was trained as a computer scientist and around the time we were graduating um, undergrad and all of my friends were going off to work at Google and Facebook and I was thinking about my options and I just couldn't shake the feeling that I wanted to do something that was going to have a more meaningful impact on the world mm-hmm. and to me I think it was very natural that I decided that kind of a medicine adjacent mm. approach was where I wanted to be. Um, like My family's in medicine. I grew up hearing about integrative medicine, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is probably why I use that word now come to think of it. <laughs> um, and so it made sense to me to try to use these skills that I had to understand human health in some way. So I was um, looking around all of the different labs that were available to me at Stanford um, and I cold emailed a lab <laughs> whose research I thought looked very cool it was a bioinformatics lab um, and I got an email back saying you should come to our lab meeting uh, it's at this time they did not give me a place um, and so oh, man. I was like okay what do I do now <laughs> uh, so I went at that time and I sat at a table in the med school while I sent an email asking for the location and I waited at this table for I don't know half an hour um, before I got the the response to come to this building in the med school. And yeah, you know, the campus is big enough that I absolutely would have missed it mm. if I hadn't been sitting at that table. Um, and I attribute that to a fun piece of advice that my mom gave me once, which was to just show up. Mm. It doesn't matter what you do once you're there, just show up. So I showed up at the table. Um, That got me into the lab meeting. Once I was there, I started talking to everybody. And I actually met um, Maude David, who's currently my PI, who was a postdoc at the time in that lab. And I heard about her research, thought it was super cool, uh, told her in no uncertain terms that I wanted to be on her project. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think she appreciated that and liked that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I worked with her for two years during my master's, really liked the research really liked working with her enough that actually when she got her faculty position here at OSU and she asked me to come with her I thought that sounded like a grand idea <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to stick with you a
0: little longer yeah she Do had a lot to research. teach me yeah
1: um, and i think i think it's been great i think she's taught me a lot um obviously academically but also personally um mm-hmm. how to be in
0: science <laughs> that is I feel like that's very profound how to be in science
1: yeah I mean do. this is a lot that goes into that
0: <laughs> yeah it can it's rough out there some days <laughs> so that's how you ended up here um but you're pretty close to graduating I am which side note I'm very happy for you but also very sad because Christine and I are in the same lab and she's leaving before I am <laughs> but what is what do you think is the next step for you? What is your, do you have like a broad life goal or something you would like to accomplish? Such a big question. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. It's
1: fine. Um, yes, I think it always has been. Even when I was thinking about coming to do the PhD in the first place, and I remember my parents sat me down and they're like, what do you want to do as part of your PhD? And I was like, um, I think... I think I want to um, help people, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I that has become more specific uh, as I've gotten older. And what it is now is I want to make ways for people to help people. Mm. So I don't necessarily want to be the person on the front lines doing the helping, <laughs> but I love the idea of creating infrastructure and methods, techniques and avenues for people to use and adapt um, to then have a positive impact on the world. Um, I think it's a way you can really propagate your individual impact and empower others to, to also kind of join the, the effort.
0: So well said. And, and you know, what a, what a great life goal to have that not just helping people, but helping people help people. Yes. And, and doing it
1: from the background. It's very important. <laughs> Don't like being in the spotlight. Don't like being in the spotlight.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for joining us here tonight, being a little bit in the spotlight, I guess. Uh, so before we wrap up here, we have a couple traditions. And first, I would like to ask you, what is your favorite part about what you do, whether that's research or grad school? What's your favorite?
1: Yeah, I thought about this for a while because uh, I knew <laughs> you were going to ask me that. <laughs> and I think there's some a lot of things I really like, like, you know, working with awesome people and being in this very cool, exciting space. But truly my favorite part of the entire process is when you get some nice, crisp, cool data <laughs> and you get to visualize it for the first time and you see some pattern or something that you think is really, really cool, and you're like, "Oh my god, is this real? Like, is, is this a real signal that I'm seeing?" And that that like excitement, visualizing for the first time some kind of biological trend, I think is just so cool.
0: Yeah, you're kind of lifting the veil on one of life's many mysteries, and you are the first person to see it yet. See it. And you get to play with it, and you can touch it. Um, <laughs> it's very fun. Very, very good. So, our next tradition is uh, a piece of advice, and I would like you to tell me your advice and who it's for.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, can I give two pieces of advice? Absolutely. (laughs) So, the first is the advice my mom gave me just show (laughs) up after that. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Um, And the second is this is for everyone. don't be scared to ask the stupid questions, um, partially because you'll find really cool answers and partially because you'll look a lot more stupid if you don't ask the question <laughs> and you don't know the answer. Um, I feel like I spent you know, a good, good amount of time being scared to ask the stupid questions, and it's so much more fun when you do.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wish I'd heard that far earlier in grad school, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Um, All right, and before we get to our last tradition, I just wanted to thank you one more time for coming on the show, and I, uh, of course, have really enjoyed hearing about your work. Yeah, it was very fun.
1: The whole process was really awesome, so thank you.
0: You are very welcome. Our last tradition is um, to send you out with the song of your choice. Please tell us what song that is and why you picked it. (laughs) Um,
1: I picked the song Just Jammin' by Grammatic and I picked it because it is my favorite work song. If I need to get something done, this is the song.
0: All right and with that, thank you Christine and here is Just Jammin' by Grammatic.
1: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook
0: at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.